I had a slight technical snafu in the podcast you are about to listen. This was recorded, it's actually recorded in a class form. And after the class, I realized that my microphone wasn't on and therefore it wasn't recorded on the pristine microphone at the Torch Center. But I was able to retrieve the audio from the Zoom. It was on Zoom as well. So the audio is not as good as you may be accustomed to here from the Torah 101 podcast. But alas, this is what we have. I think it's serviceable enough. I think it's good enough. It's not great. I apologize for that. But I hope you enjoy it nonetheless. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. This is our 11th installment in our Messiah series, and we're trying to do it very comprehensively, very thoroughly. And today we're going to address a central element of this principle, and that is not to make calculations to determine when Messiah is coming. Of course, we're all curious to know. We've learned a lot about Messiah to realize that this is a very wonderful, utopian, idyllic world. And it's tantalizing to think about, well, when will this actually happen? But you recall, when Rambam himself, when he delineates this principle, principle number 12 of the 13 principles of faith, he tells us one of the clauses of this principle is, do not assign for it a time. Don't affix for it a time to come. And don't employ theories or arguments or prognostications from Scripture to determine when it is coming. And he quotes the Talmud. The Talmud curses those who try to calculate the ends, try to calculate when Messiah is coming. So this is central to the principle that we are trying to understand. We believe in the idea of Messiah, the Messianic era the individual at the head who's spearheading this transformation of the whole world, Messiah himself. And part of it is upon us. We're supposed to yearn for it, we're supposed to anticipate it, we're supposed to await Messiah. But we're not supposed to try to figure out, to determine, to look at the source, to try to figure out when is it actually coming and what do we see in the prophecies that maybe could give us some direction into determining when it is coming. This is an element of the subject of Messiah. For some reason, it's an indispensable part of this principle. We believe in the idea of Messiah. We anticipate Messiah, but we must refrain from trying to deduce, determine, or calculate in any way when Messiah is coming using scriptural proofs or otherwise. Now, there's a very interesting implication, just to get started here, in this idea that the Ramam says it's featured elsewhere in the Talmud as well, even in Scripture. There's a very interesting implication. If we're told that we must not try to use the sources to determine what Messiah is coming, evidently there are indications in Scripture, there, there's grounds for calculations. If you, if you study the subject, there are hints in the Scripture, maybe elsewhere as well, There are hints that may lead you to believe that you can perhaps interpret them to tell you when Messiah is coming. There's room to work with, but you're told to withhold from that, to refrain from that. 
And like we mentioned, this is very tantalizing. You know, the, the Messiah, this era, this time of perfection, the whole world's going to be perfected. The pursuit of God will cover the land as water covers the seabed. This is the time where God will be one and his name will be one, where God will become revealed in the world, where world peace will reign. Humanity will be upgraded and refined. The Jewish nation will be restored to their previous prominence and glory. Temple will be rebuilt. God will dwell in our midst. That's a very exciting time to think about. And there is a possibility, or at least there's reason to believe that there is a possibility, of discovering when that time will finally be here. And we're all curious to know. We would love to know when this is going to happen. And there is evidence, or at least there appears to be evidence, that can guide us, that can direct us. We're told that we must not do so. We must not ponder. We must not seek to calculate Messiah's arrival. Wait for it, anticipate for it, yearn for it, pray for it, but refrain from calculating its arrival. And this is a central part of our principle Principle number 12 of the 13 principles of our religion, the idea of Messiah. Moreover, the Talmud tells us that it's a very serious violation. Not only is it a violation of this principle, but the Talmud uses very harsh terminology when it says that someone who does try to calculate the Messiah he has no portion in the world to come which of course we learned that's a very scary thing so we must not do this we must not try to calculate or prognosticate as to when Messiah is coming but we have seen that there are perhaps indications you can potentially use Scripture to determine when Messiah is coming. You mustn't, but you theoretically could. What would someone use to determine when Messiah comes? So first of all, Ramam says, if you read it very carefully, he says that the prohibition is to use scriptural evidence to try to determine when Messiah is coming. Evidently, that's the only evidence that may be appropriate, and we're told not to do it. What about other evidence? We know that the ancients had some knowledge about the pathways of the cosmos and the celestial layout, and they understood what the what the stars are portending, even in the Torah. Abraham, God, Rashi tells us, God takes them above the stars, and in Egypt. Pharaoh had his necromancers and stargazers and gurus. And the reason why they threw all the babies into the water, because Pharaoh's stargazers told him that the savior of the Jews will be stricken by water. We know Moshe was. The one sin that he had that prevented him from entering the land is that he struck the rock to emit water as opposed to talking to it. So with that knowledge of what's going to be in the future, that's why Pharaoh mandated that all the babies be thrown into the water. Even much later, when the Jews are negotiating, when Moshe is negotiating with Pharaoh to leave, he says, how can you leave? The celestial force Ra'ah is opposed to you. So can we perhaps use other non-scriptural 
sources to determine when this is going to happen. So Rambam himself addresses this, not in the principle, in the delineation of the principle, but in the famous letter that he wrote to the Jews of Yemen. In Rambam's time, there was a false messiah that arose in Yemen. And this individual wreaked havoc in the Jewish community there. And Rambam from Egypt wrote an epic letter to the Jews of Yemen. And it's a, it's a wonderful magisterial essay about Messiah and about false messiahs and about messianic prognostication. And in this letter, he guides and directs the people and he shows them how this messianic claimant is a total fraud. And he was able to stabilize the community that was really foundering. And ever since then, incidentally, the Jews of Yemen, they're the only ones who accept every ruling of Rambam unquestioningly. Even if he's the lone opinion and everyone disagrees with him, they will just follow Rambam. They are students of Rambam. But in this essay, which we have, we have this letter to Yemen, it's chock full of insights into Messiah. And in there, we'll, we'll revisit it a few times today. In this letter, he addresses the question of using the stars or the cosmos to determine when Messiah will come. And he says, the coming of Messiah is not at all determined or deducible from the stars or the cosmos in any way. But perhaps it can be deduced potentially from Scripture. Now, if you use Scripture and not understand it, the evidence, as they say, is full of red herrings. You may come to a calculation that will prove to be erroneous, as we shall see. But there are ways to calculate when Messiah is coming from Scripture itself. We are not allowed to do it, as we shall see. But there are potentially ways to determine, to calculate the arrival of Messiah and redemption from Scripture. Now, the primary source that is used for this purpose is the book of Daniel, specifically in chapters 7 and 12. He was one of the later prophets, and he spoke a lot about the ultimate redemption. And the problem is the book itself is deliberately designed to be very difficult to understand. For one, it's written in Aramaic primarily. But he he does explicitly address the question of the arrival of Messiah. And he seems to give dates. The problem is he gives conflicting dates. In chapter 12, verse 11, he says, well, 120, I'm sorry, 1,290 days, which everyone interprets as years, after the temple is destroyed or after the exile begins. And of course, we don't know when that begins because there are many different dates that we can look to as the beginning of the exile. For example, we know that the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of our nation, they were permanently stationed in the marble chamber in the temple. And they went into exile 40 years before the temple was actually destroyed. And there was a point 
in the in the run up to the destruction of the temple where the daily sacrifices ended. And then there was a point when the temple was actually destroyed. And there were further reverberations afterwards. And each one of these is another element of exile. Which one of them are we going to use to begin the clock? It's a mystery. But even once the clock begins, in chapter 12, he tells us in verse 11, well, it's 1,290 days, years, after the exile begins. And the very next verse, he tells us a different date. Not 1290, but 1335. Now again, the, the days... The commentaries tell us it's actually years, and days are often used as a code name for years. Other verses indicate that the number of years is 1150, or perhaps 2300. So we have all sorts of numbers of years after the Agile begins, that it ends, that redemption happens, the Messiah comes, and we have, again, in a, in a prophet, the words of a prophet. And it's not so clear what exactly he means. Now, other very cryptic verses are used also from the book of Daniel to analyze for this purpose. An angel appears to Daniel and he tells him when all this is going to happen. Look at Daniel 12.7 or 7.25. And then Daniel himself, the prophet, he attests that he doesn't know what the angel is saying. So we have verses in Scripture but the verses seem to be conflicting with each other. And the author of these verses, a prophet himself, attests that he doesn't know what exactly he is prophesying. Now, there are other uh, verses in Scripture. The Talmud uh, brings from Haggai, chapter 2, and from Psalms. These are used in the Talmud as source material for our question of messianic prognostication. There are also verses in the Torah itself, perhaps the Book of Numbers, by the blessings of Bilam, perhaps in Devarim, when we actually have the descriptions of Messiah. But even though there are indications, there are insinuations, there are hints, there are allusions in Scripture, everything about Messiah, we're told and we can observe. Everything about it is deliberately concealed. The Talmud that we mentioned in the past, Psachim 54b, tells us there are six things that are concealed from humanity. Number six, the kingdom of David. When will it return? Number seven, the evil kingdom. When will it end? Two elements of Messiah, the elimination of the evil kingdom, and the reestablishment of the Davidic kingdom, the Davidic monarchy, those two, we're told, it's not possible for us to penetrate. Messiah is, by definition, something which is hidden. It's not some sort of natural development that we can kind of see and forecast and telegraph ahead of time. We can say, well, calamities will happen, and things will get bad, and then We'll have some sort of transformation. We'll have some renaissance. Messiah will come. The definition of Messiah is a a change in the world. And of course, the rules of physics still apply, as we mentioned in the past. But it's a revelation of a new world, a world that currently is hidden. And God wants it to remain a secret. 
And if you study more about Messiah in general, we can see that all the things about Messiah are secrets and operate in a secretive manner. The classic example of this is the pedigree of Messiah. We know stories about the ancestry of Messiah. Every single one of them, if we were observers, we would say this has nothing to do with Messiah. We would look at that to be the the most distant thing from Messiah. Lot and his daughters in the cave, the most scandalous or one of the most scandalous things we could possibly even think of. Well, that's going to produce Moab, who's going to produce Ruth, the great-grandmother of David. The story that we read, the scandalous story, well, that's part of the world of Messiah. To us, it doesn't look like Messiah. It doesn't look like this, this, this ultimate cosmic progress, but it is. And then, of course, you have Ruth herself, Ruth and Boaz, and David and Bathsheba, and Judah and Tamar, Joseph, a story of Joseph, and his Redemption, redemptions always happen as surprises. Joseph's brothers themselves, who were privy to everything that happened, they could not believe. They were completely dumbfounded when there was this revelation. I'm Joseph, is my father still alive? That's an example of Messiah. It's a total surprise. comes out of left field. No one's anticipating it. Messiah is a secret. Redemption is a secret. And there's no way to penetrate that secret. Now, notwithstanding the fact that we have verses in Scripture that seem to be talking about Messiah, seeming to seem to forecast and foretell when Messiah is going to happen, it is a secret and will remain a secret until it's transformed and we get a revelation. Now, Daniel himself, chapter 12, verse 4, he is instructed to deliberately obscure, obfuscate, and conceal his prophecies. He's told, seal the book, cover it, conceal it, hide it. And thus, it's no no surprise that the sources appear to us as, as if they were deliberately garbled. We know that there are sanctioned translations of our scripture. The Talmud tells us that the translation of the Torah, well, that was done by Unculus, the convert. And he studied under Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yehoshua, the giants of the Mishnahic era. And that translation was accepted. It's the authoritative translation of the Torah. And then the prophets, that was translated by Jonathan Yonasan ben Uziel, one of the students of Hillel. And he translated it based upon the prophecies of Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, the, the latter prophets. And when he made this translation, the world was in an uproar. And the land of Israel was shaking. And a prophecy emerged from heaven. Who was the one who's revealing all the secrets? Because the translation is there to kind of give us an insight, the window. It's, it's there to help us interpret what we're reading. And Yonas ben Uziel, the translator, he says to the prophecy, well, it was me. I was the one who revealed your secrets to humanity. And I didn't do it for my own honor or for the honor of my family. I did it in order to limit, to minimize, to mitigate disagreements and disputes amongst the nation. And then Jonathan, Yonas ben Uziel, 
he wanted to translate the writings as well. So the Torah has been translated, the Nevi'im, the prophets, now it's time to translate the third component of the Tanakh, the Tzuvim, the writings. A prophecy came out and said, no, this you shall not do. Why? Because it talks about Messiah and the redemption and the end of days, says Rashi, in the book of Daniel. And therefore, the translation, i.e. to bring it closer to our understanding, is prohibited. Now, Rambam, in the aforementioned Idaris Taman, the letter to Yemen, he tells us, quote, you should know, you must know, that Messiah, truthfully, it's not possible for any human to know it forever, meaning under any circumstances. And he quotes Daniel himself, these matters are sealed and covered. And Daniel himself, again, the, the author of the book of Daniel, prophet, he attests that he himself doesn't understand the prophecy. And the Midrash tells us there were two people who sought to reveal it, Jacob and Daniel. When Jacob gathered his sons before his passing, he tells them, his, his ex- express intent is to reveal what will happen in the end of days. But he starts talking about other things. And Rashi there, based upon the Midrash, tells us that, well, he forgot it. It went away from him. He had a foothold in it, Daniel as well. But they were precluded and prevented from disseminating this onward. This is a secret. And it must remain a secret. Even Solomon, the wisest of all men, the Midrash tells us, he sought to know it, but he was barred from doing so. Messiah is hidden. When it's coming, is hidden. Trying to calculate and prognosticate and determine when it's going to come, that is prohibited and it is futile. It's hidden from us. We cannot know when this will happen. When God wants a secret to remain a secret, there's nothing that any human can do to crack this code. Now, our sources emphasize the futility of trying to penetrate the secret. There's an amazing midrash wherein God calls the people trying to calculate Messiah. He calls them fools. And he says, listen, well, we, we have we have an example of this. When God wants to keep a secret, there's no way to unlock that. God buried Moshe at the very end of the Torah. We're told, markers in a gorge in the land of Moab, opposite base Pa'ar. And the verse concludes, no one knows where he is buried. Says the Midrash, as if God is speaking. Fools, I, I, I have, we have something here where I gave you three markers. I told you where to look for it. It's in the gorge, in the land of Moab, opposite Beis Par. And everyone tries to find it, and they can't find it. Tamach tells us that the people that went to the bottom, it looked like it was on the top. The people climbed to the top, now it looks like it's on the bottom. God provided us three markers for Moshe's burial spot 
yet no one can find it. This, the Midrash tells us, shows us the futility of trying to decipher and decrypt this code. Now, many of the commentators point out the following idea. We have other redemptions. Of course, we were in Egypt, exile, and then we had the Exodus. And then the Jewish people, 40 years in the wilderness, and they conquered the land, and David and Solomon, and they built the temple. And then the Babylonians came and sent the Jews again into exile. And they were there for 70 years, and they came back and rebuilt the temple. And the temple was destroyed. The second commonwealth ended. And once again, we were plunged again into exile. And we're waiting for Messiah. We're waiting for the final redemption. Those other redemptions, we are given definitive timelines for when the exile will end and redemption will commence. Yet even when we're told very clearly, this is exactly how long you will be there, there were mistakes and miscalculations. Now, Rambam has a whole essay or a whole paragraph in this, in his letter to Yemen. And he says, look at uh, the Egyptian exile. The verse tells us, God tells Abraham in the covenant of the parts, Genesis chapter 15, they will be foreigners in a foreign land. And they will be enslaved and they will be oppressed for 400 years. It cannot get any clearer. 400 years. Yet there were miscalculations. When does the counting start? Some thought that, well, once Jacob and the 70 souls descend to Egypt, that's when the clock begins. You recall we quoted a midrash where Moshe comes to the nation, it's time to leave. And the nation says, no, we have 190 years to go. We've only been here for 210 years. They miscounted. They started counting too late. Others miscounted even further. They said, well, when they got to Egypt, they were treated as royalty. The oppression and enslavement didn't begin until much later. 70 years after Jacob descended to Egypt, that's when the enslavement began. Well, that's when the 400-year clock starts starts ticking. So these people delay the start of the 400-year clock. Others started it too early. God told Abraham the the covenant of the parts happened when Abraham was 70. And thus, it was 430 years before the Exodus. But if the clock were to have started then, then 30 years prior to the Exodus, well, that's when the redemption is due. And we're told in the Midrash, and this is featured actually in a verse in Psalms as well, when that 400-year clock ended, there was a group of Jews from the tribe of Ephraim. This is before Moshe shows up. They left. They tried to, they said, well, it's time. But they jumped the gun. They left 30 years earlier. They miscalculated. 
And these people were all slaughtered by the Egyptians. These people, again, miscalculated. They thought that the 400-year clock begins immediately. And thus, 400 years from the date of the prophecy, they left unilaterally, and they were all killed. Ultimately, it started with the birth of Isaac. Isaac was born on Pesach, on Passover, 400 years to the day from the Exodus. And the way Rambam explains, you look at the prophecy. The prophecy says that there'll be foreigners. Uh, your descendants will be foreigners. They'll be enslaved. And they'll be oppressed for 400 years. But what does the 400 years go on? Once you have descendants who are foreigners, namely, once Isaac is born in the land of Canaan, you've fulfilled those criteria, you have descendants, and they are foreigners, that moment is when the clock starts. And thus, 400 years to the day from then, that's when the Exodus happened. The 400 years, that applies on the foreignness of the prophecy, not on the enslavement of the prophecy. And this was only clarified afterwards. But this example can be extended to other redemptions as well. We have a redemption whose time was given to us with absolute extreme precision. It was revealed. And they didn't know. They didn't know how to interpret it. Certainly, if we have a redemption and the time is not clear and it's deliberately hidden and concealed and we're given all sorts of conflicting pieces of evidence, it doesn't make sense to calculate and it is futile to do so. Another one of the great medieval sages, the Ran, brings a different example. After the Jews got to the land and they established hegemony over the land, and they built the temple. We know the first temple was destroyed. The Jewish people were sent into exile to Babylon. And the verse tells us, Jeremiah, they'll be there for for 70 years. Well, when does it start? Again, there were various different junctures in the devolvement of Jewish life in their homeland that each one of these devolvements could be used as the starting point of the prophecy. So again, we have, we're told the exact length of the exile, but there is room for miscalculation. And uh, Belshats are miscalculated, and according to the Talmud, Ahasuerus' party was also a celebration of the end of the prophecy, and thus the definitive evidence that the Jewish people will not be restored to their land, they all miscalculate it. So Messianic prognostication is prohibited, and it is also impossible and also futile. But why? Why, in fact, is Messiah and the arrival of Messiah, why is it so impenetrable? Why is it so hidden? Why is it such a secret? Why mustn't we calculate? So there are a variety of reasons for this found in the sources. The Talmud itself, 
offers a few reasons. The first idea that the Talmud says is that if someone makes a calculation for Messiah, it can lead to heresy. You're sure it's coming in the year 1403. Everyone's all excited. Everyone's anticipating. Everyone has their bags packed. 1403 comes and goes, and now it's 1404. And everyone's hopes are dashed, and everyone's disenchanted, and everyone is depressed, and everyone lapses into melancholy. And there is room for heresy. We knew for sure when it was coming. We did all the math. And the time came, and Messiah didn't show. Our calculation was right, we assume. But this is evidence that Messiah is not coming. This is kind of similar to the miscalculation that led to the golden calf story. Moshe says, I'll be back in 40 days. 40 days come, and he's not here. He must be gone. And there are indications that he's dead. Well, let's find an alternative. Let's build a golden calf. That's a real danger. Don't make calculations. Then there won't be any miscalculations. And it won't lead to heresy. There's another reason why we don't calculate that the Talmud offers us. The Talmud tells us in the book of Sanhedrin, page 97a, and Sanhedrin 97-98, all the, or many of the Messiah sources are found there. It tells that one of the great sages, he overheard some of the rabbis dealing with this, talking about this. Well, when's Messiah coming? What do we know? What can we prove? What evidence is there? And he tells them, please, please stop talking about this. Because this is liable to lengthen the exile. And he tells us, Messiah it's one of the three things that must come as a surprise. And if you try to calculate and determine when it's going to come, that will actually delay the arrival of Messiah. Messiah has to be a surprise. And if you're not surprised, well, it's not a propitious time for Messiah. And therefore, don't calculate, because that can only lead to a delay in the coming of Messiah. Rambam, in his letter to Yemen, he speaks about this idea that the arrival of Messiah has to be when people are not expecting it. And he talks about in Egypt, it was universally agreed that the Jews could not be saved. And specifically, when the nation had given up, that's when the salvation began. And when Egypt seemed invincible, that's when the plagues came. And this pattern will be true as well in the times of Messiah. When the nation is in the dumps and the oppressors seem invincible and redemption seems impossible, then Messiah comes. So if it has to be a surprise, then that is irreconcilable with an accurate, at least, an accurate calculation. As such, there's a, a deep point here. It has to be a surprise. And therefore, there's no way to calculate it correctly ahead of time. 
Because if you are correct, well, then it's not a surprise. And then it turns out you, you're not correct. Thus, the only way to get it right is to be wrong. If you are right, and everyone's okay, we know that Messiah is coming. We're ready for it. We have our clocks set and our calendars marked. Well, that must be wrong because now it's no longer a surprise. And therefore, accurate forecasting of Messiah can only delay Messiah. When you're sure it's going to happen, you're sure it's around the corner. Well, that's not the kind of environment in which it comes. And therefore, calculation should be avoided because it's just going to elongate the exile. Now, there's a third reason that is, it's not explicit in the Talmud, but it's implied in the Talmud. If you know when Messiah is coming, a central part of the whole subject of Messiah is eliminated. And that is the anticipation, the yearning, the hoping, the craving, the pining, the desiring. Every day we're hoping it could come today. If you have a date, you know, it's coming in April of uh, 2034, you know that, okay, well, we should deal with other things till then. Calculation, even if it's accurate, probably not it can be accurate. Even if it was accurate, that eliminates a central part of Messiah. One of the benefits of Messiah is that we we have this anticipation and this yearning and this hope that it can come today. And thus, uh, a third reason that the Talmud tells us why we must not calculate is by doing so, we're not going to anticipate it. Now, the medieval commentators, they offer other reasons why it was concealed and why we cannot get the accurate date of the arrival of Messiah via some sort of prognostication. The Ron tells us, if we knew when Messiah will come, we'd get very depressed. Imagine it's the year 850. And you discover that by 2023, so 1,500 years in the future, it's still not here. Imagine how depressing that is, knowing how long you have to wait. Suppose you knew it's, it's not going to come for the next 500 years. That can be very dispiriting. That can be very dejecting. And it can be counterproductive because you won't do whatever you need to do today to hasten it. It could be demotivational. Similar to the idea of if you knew how long you would live, you'll have a less robust life. If you knew that you have till 100, you say, well, I'll party till I'm 90 and then I'll repent and then I'll emerge completely pure. I'll be this angel when I die at 100. No, you have to live every day like it's your last. And you have to live every day like you, like you can affect Messiah. And of course, we know that Messiah is variable and there are different times in which it can come. And our behavior contributes to what type of Messiah we get and when we get it. And therefore, there's no way to really accurately forecast it. So for all these reasons, Messiah is a secret and it will remain such. And again, we're told, not to do it, 
and we're told that there are serious consequences if we do, and there's a whole bunch of really reasonable, logical reasons why we should avoid doing it. But there's a big problem. And the problem is that there are apparent violations of this everywhere. You look at our literature, and there are all sorts of very reputable people that do assign a date, that do affix a time. For example, the Talmud, in the same page, Sanhedrin 97b, tells us that uh, Elijah, Elijah spoke to one of the sages and, and told him, well, the world will not be fewer than 85 Yovel Jubilee, 50-year Jubilee periods. So Rashi does the math for us. Well, that's that's 4,250 years. And in the last Yovel, well, Messiah will come. Now, this was a little bit of a cryptic message. Was it the beginning of, of the Yovel, the end of the Yovel? Is this the minimum? What does it even mean? We have seen in the past that the the year after Ashmita, which is the seven-year period, the year afterwards Messiah will come. We know that Yovel is, is year 50, so it always comes after year 49. And 49 is divisible by, by seven. So it makes sense that it will come on Yovel. But what does this mean? Does this mean that this is the beginning or the end? 4,250. So the Talmud actually concludes that this is the starting point. It cannot come any sooner than the year 4,250, which has passed. (laughs) So we're past that starting point. Now the Talmud, on the very same page, it features a letter, a mysterious letter that was written in in uh, two types of Hebrew, the 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 Assyrian script and the 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 Paleo uh, Hebrew script, and it was found uh, in the archives of Rome, and it says that uh, uh, the year of four thousand two hundred and ninety one years after the world was created, which equates to the year five thirty one of the Common Era, and then the world will be orphaned, and maybe there's going to be wars, maybe the war of Gog and Magog, and the rest of the time is Messiah, which is a you know, very cryptic and mysterious letter. But that too is featured in the Talmud. That seems to be talking about some sort of dating process for Messiah. Now the Talmud also features predictions from great sages, Rabbi Ativa, Rabbi Simlai. Even later, after the Talmudic era ended, the period of the Gaonim featured one of the great of the Gaonim, the leaders of uh, world Jewry who lived in Babylon. The great Sa'ad Yagon, in his great work, his magisterial work, Emunos Videos, he addresses the confusing and conflicting prophecies of Daniel. And he resolves all the contradictions. And he determines the year that Messiah will come. The year 1403. This was many, many centuries after Sa'ad Yagon lived. But for us, that's in the past. Now, this date, 
this date was a popular date by many of the latter sages as well. So Rabbeinu Bechaya, who wrote one of the great commentaries on the Torah, and he quotes Rabbeinu Hananel, which is also one of the great medieval sages, uh, they connect the three dates of Daniel with the three dates of the Exodus. The Exodus also had three dates. It was 400, but it was also 430. It was also 210. And each one of them was true in one dimension. And similarly, the three dates that were given from Daniel, 1150, 1290, and 1335, each one of them is a, is a potential date, and maybe it can, on some dimension, be true. And we had three dates in Egypt in order to enliven our spirits. We shouldn't give up. We shouldn't say we have no hope. And all three were accurate on one dimension or another. And similarly, the, the multiple dates that we have from Daniel are all true in one dimension. And if we're meritorious, we'll get it early, 1150. And if not, well, then 1290. These are years after the destruction. And if we're completely not meritorious, well, then we'll have it 1335 after the destruction. And that date equated to the year 1403 of the Common Era which is a very long time ago, 700 plus years ago, the Messiah is still not here. So it seems like we can say definitively that those calculations were erroneous. Now, Rambam himself, although he doesn't make a prediction when Messiah will come, he does say that he has a tradition that he heard from his father and from his grandfather, and they received from their antecedents all the way back the time of the exile from Jerusalem. And it relates to the prophecy of Bilaam. And there's a secret in the prophecy of Bilaam. And that is at the halfway point from the creation of the world. Until then, and if you add that, so you add the amount of years from the creation of the world until Bilaam's prophecy, and you just double that, that being the midpoint, and that we know, he tells us, that was eight, I'm sorry, that was 38 years after the Exodus. And therefore, if the Exodus was the year 2448 since Adam, well, Balaam's prophecy was the year 2486 from creation. And if you double that, well, then you'll have the year 4973 from Adam. And that's when prophecy will return. Of course, prophecy, that's an element of Messiah. And this is the tradition that we have going back to the exile from from Jerusalem. But they made a promise not to publicize it, etc. Now, the year 4973 is 1212 of the Common Era. And that's the tradition that Ramam has. Again, he's not talking about when Messiah will come, but when prophecy will be restored, which is... Again, an element, he tells us, of the Messianic era. But that has passed, and it doesn't seem as we're not aware of the restoration of, of prophecy. Now, one of the early commentators on Daniel, he has a different calculation, and he arrives at the year 1940. And 1940, he tells us, that's the year 5700. And we know that the year 6,000, that's the final endpoint. 
And Messiah will come, we're told, in this source, to give us 300 years beforehand in order to fix everything up that needed to be done before the Messiah. Now, the Gona Vilna, even later, and his students, based on a verse in the Song of Songs, they calculated that a certain element of Messiah, part of the run-up, perhaps, to Messiah, will be in the year 1840, which is why there was a studious effort, an aborted effort by the Gon of Vilna himself, a successful effort by his students to move to Israel. And they moved to Jerusalem and they established what's known as the Old Yishuv. They were there to prepare for, I guess, the coalescing of the Jews back in the land. And this, they did get right, we know. But again, we see another example of great reputable sages doing what apparently we're told we should not do. My father, he should live and be well, he asked his father, my grandfather, blessed memory, well, when's the Messiah coming? So my grandfather told him, if you read all the writings of the Gona Vilna, every single one of them, you can't miss it. It's right there. So evidently, there is some sort of definitive calculation, but we need to read all the writings of the Gona Vilna, which I can assure you is quite voluminous. But regardless, we're told in the Rambam, we're told in the sources, the Talmud, elsewhere, that we are not allowed to calculate when Messiah will come. Yet we see that many giants, Sa'adigon himself, other medieval sages, even in, in the Talmud, they, in fact, did this. And there's all sorts of efforts to try to justify the behavior of these great sages. The Rambam himself, in his letter to Yemen, he says, we have to judge Sa'ad Yagon favorably. He did it, even though he knows that the Torah forbids it. The reason why is because the people of his generation, they themselves had their theories and their calculations, and those calculations and theories were all corrupt. And the community was almost destroyed due to these miscalculations. And if not for him, stabilizing the community could have been completely destroyed. And one of the ways that he saw fitting to try to get the generation back on track is to, to speak to the masses. You know, nuance is always lost in the masses. Nuance, you can say to one or two people. The masses doesn't really work with that. So one of the ways he was able to get the, the masses, the whole generation back on track, to strengthen them and to enliven their spirits, was to do this calculation. And this was a trade-off. He, he knew it was prohibited, but he justified it because it was better than the alternative. And his intention was noble, and his intention was for the sake of heaven, and we are not to question him. 
There are other justifications found in these sources. One of them is that the prohibition is only if a miscalculation will lead to heresy. You recall the Talmud tells us that if you calculate Messiah and the Messiah doesn't come at the apportioned date, well, then you'll say, Messiah didn't come and my calculation was accurate. It must be it's never coming. And if that is the only concern, well, if your calculation is conditional, you say, well, there's reason to believe that it will come at this date. And when that date comes, well, you conclude that you were wrong but you don't deduce from that the Messiah is not coming at all, then this argument or this line of reasoning says, well, then it's okay. Another way to justify it is that it's only prohibited if you do nothing about it. If someone says, well, let me sit in my armchair and pontificate and prognosticate without doing any work. I'm not going to try to effectuate any change. I'm not trying to usher in Messiah and do what I can to hasten it. I'll just sit around and just spitball. That's prohibited. But if you have a sense, a deep sense, that this is when it's going to happen, and this is what I need to do to bring that about, and you do what you can, in that context, this justification argues that it will be permitted. But this is part of the principle. We do not engage in messianic prognostications, it's prohibited. The Talmud says some very scary things about it. And yes, there are examples of very reputable sages that did it. They had their reasons and their justifications. We're simple people. We don't engage in this. And we realize it's secret. And the Almighty wants it to remain a secret. And even the great prophet Daniel himself attests that it's a secret and he didn't fully understand it. And he sealed and he concealed and he deliberately obfuscated his message. And we understand the dangers, the potential pitfalls and perils. It's futile to do it. It's impossible to do it. And it's a big mistake to engage in this sort of behavior. The Talmud does tell us that we do have a final endpoint. By the year 6,000, this world is over. The Talmud tells us that this is a 6,000-year world. 2,000 years of tohu, of emptiness, of nothingness. 2,000 years of Torah. And 2,000 years of Messiah. And then... The seventh millennium, that's sort of like a Shabbos, that's like a Shemitah, and in that world, the world's going to be destroyed or put on ice and in a hibernation stage. That is a source that we have seen. At least the simple way to read it is that by the year 6,000, Messiah will definitely be here. Now, the problem with this is that it's a little bit hard to figure out when that is. What year are we in right now? So I'm speaking to you in the year 2023 of the Common Era, and the Jewish date 
The Jewish date is the year 5783. But are we sure? Are we sure that this is 5783 since Adam? Now, I want to put aside the question of the age of the universe. We spoke about this in the past, that uh, there, the Talmud says there were worlds that preceded our world. So I'm not getting into the whole question of 15 billion years or 6,000 years or young world. It's a separate discussion. Since Adam, since the Torah begins to recount, we have dates. We're told how old Adam was, when Seth was born, etc. We're told 26 generations from Adam to Moshe, 10 from Adam to Noah, and then 10 from Noah to Abraham, and then Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, to Levi, to Kehas, to Amram, and to Moshe. And the way we actually know the year 5783 it's not like there's some sort of accounting of that. We just add the years. You know, Adam was this amount of years when his son was born, and he was that amount of years when his son was born, etc. And you just add these 26 generations on top of each other. And you have the, the final date at the end of the Torah. And then, well, you just... We have accounting, you know, how long after the Exodus did Solomon build the temple? We have dates. But it's done in a uh, sort of a crude fashion. So I always have a question on this. I didn't see anyone that asked this question. This is kind of my question. Do we believe, or what's the likelihood that all of these people, the 26 generations from Adam to Moshe, what's the likelihood that they all gave birth on their birthday? They all gave birth to their son, to their successor on the birthday. It's very unlikely, right? We're not given months and days. So if 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 Adam was 130 when his son was born, what are the odds that he was exactly 130? It was most likely, on average, somewhere it's probably six months on average, right? Because if it's a year, a random date within a year is somewhere going to be halfway uh, on average between the beginning of the year and the end of the year. So if months are included... then there should be, on average, 13 more years on top of the calculation from the 26 generations. That's an interesting question. Then I've never seen anyone ask. So do we know exactly what year we're in? Maybe no. This is a tradition, and this is our working assumption. But this may be quite relevant because if there's this endpoint, 6,000 years, and that's the end, well, this is very germane to the subject, especially as we get close. I remember hearing from a great sage. He said, well, we don't worry about catastrophic climate change because even the, the, the the most terrifying model gives us a couple hundred years still. And that's enough, because any MSI is coming by then, and we don't have to worry about that. But there's this idea that, okay, we, we, we don't know exactly when, but we have the end point. In fact, part of Messiah is the reinstitution of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the body that does a lot of things, but one of the things that it does is that it consecrates the new moon, the new month, Rosh Chodesh. If you don't have a Sanhedrin, 
then you don't have a new month. If you don't have a new month, you don't have a calendar. If you don't have a calendar, you don't have any festivals. The Sanhedrin was dissolved in the 4th century. How do we have festivals today? How do we have a calendar today? So I would say, well, we have a calendar because if we don't have a Sanhedrin, then we have to just do it manually. That's what I would say. But that's wrong. The reason why we have a calendar is because the Sanhedrin, their final act was to manually consecrate ahead of time all the months, but they have an end point. They only did it until the year 6,000. Because that is the final end point by which the Sanhedrin must be reconstituted, Messiah must be here, and therefore, well, then the the local basin in its time, the local Sanhedrin in its time, not the local Sanhedrin, but the great Sanhedrin, when it's actually reconstituted, they can manually do the month every month. So we have this endpoint. We don't know exactly where we are along this endpoint. We have the tradition with the, with the year uh, five, seven, eight, three. Perhaps there are other mysteries that there's this uh, question of missing years, and we're missing maybe 160 years, and how does that affect the timeline? But regardless, this question of when Messiah will come, Jacob wanted to reveal t- to his sons, and he was not allowed to do it. And the prophets are all full of all hints, but it is a dangerous pursuit. It's a double-edged sword. They can and have been misinterpreted. And perhaps this is part of the test. That there are going to be Messiah claimants that are false. And they may get a following because this is something which is very easy to get a following with. That idea of hope and spreading the notion of redemption and utopia. That's how all cults are born. And that's part of the test. We have to wait for the real one, not for the fraudulent ones. But we recall, Rama himself, Daniel himself, they tell us no one knows ahead of time. Our job is to hope and to yearn and to await and to crave Messiah and to do whatever we can to bring Messiah. And we know it can come today if we are meritorious. But we do not try to calculate or prognosticate when Messiah will come. I thank you for listening. It was great to uh, continue our exploration of the Messiah from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. This was the 11th installment. I don't know how many more we'll have. We have some more left to talk about. And I uh, actually had something else that I was planning on talking about, but I said, I'm, I'm, I'm the dictator here and I can decide what we talk about. So I, I edited, edited some of the things that uh, were on schedule, but we have some more exciting subjects to ponder and to explore. And I look forward to your questions and your comments and, of course, your feedback. And you can always email me. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.